This is Nate Hansen. And Tim Ritter. We are Almost Heretical. You can find us online at almostheretical.com. Welcome back, friends. We are jumping back into the set of conversations we've been having on Leviticus, atonement, what Jesus accomplished, all of that. The fun continues. Yeah, talking about atonement a little bit um, the last couple weeks and like what did Jesus even have to die? That was one of my favorite episodes that we did. You said some pretty, I think, revolutionary things there. Um for me, at least, to hear that Jesus didn't necessarily have to die was big, you know, because that's totally different than the way that we've sort of been taught that or that we've taught that in the past. Um, okay, so, but let's move on now because we've gotten so many questions from all of you and keep them coming because it's awesome. We we structure and kind of frame our future shows based on a lot of your feedback. So keep that coming. You can do that at almostheretical.com. So we got a question from Jeremy that we're going to play right now. Hi, Nate and Tim. I was wondering if you could answer the question, who did Jesus pay? I know that most early Christians did not believe that God paid God. As I understand, the views of early Christians were more similar to what C.S. Lewis based The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe on, where, for example, it is the white witch who's demanding blood, not Aslan. If you could explain the different theories of atonement versus penal substitution, that would be great. Thank you. Thanks for the question, Jeremy. Okay, so this might sound like a total curveball from where we've been talking about atonement as making things clean or making things holy, Uh, but what I'm going to try to show is that it's not. It's all uh, intimately connected and related, and you can't understand atonement apart from liberation and vice versa. So let's just jump in. Okay, so I think we need to set the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe scene a bit before so we can then jump in and answer this question does that sound good sure so the aslan which is kind of the picture of god slash jesus uh it has to die at the end spoiler alert (laughs) it's been it's do you have to give those when it's been like (laughs) 50 plus years or or are you good okay so we're good if you didn't read it yet that's on you i think at this point so yeah aslan dies at the end and has to essentially pay off the white white witch. Is that right? And but, but what's interesting there is there's no, and I was thinking about this, they kind of combine Aslan into this God slash Jesus figure. There's not this other being, right? There's not like another being besides Aslan in that story um, that could have even been complicated in this whole thing of like, well, maybe Aslan was dying to appease. Aslan? Schmajlan, you know, (laughs) you know, right. So like, there's not, there's not that, um, which I think clears things up a little bit, but, and then there's also this clear, which is where we're going to go with ransom theory. There's also this clear message of it was paying off the white witch. Now, can you explain a little bit more how in Lewis's theology in Chronicles of Narnia, how he would have understood or how he explained that being for anything wrong that the children or that the world had of of Narnia had done. Does it get into that at all? I don't remember. Like, why is it, what needs to be paid off? I guess explained in the story, what, what would need to be paid off in Lewis's Narnia world? Wow. I can't believe I can't remember the full story, but uh, wasn't it basically the, the, the witch had some like legal sort of like, uh, 
you know, refers to it as, as a deeper magic. There was some sort of like cosmic legal um, contractual leverage over people, uh, which is why she could institute this like season long or year long constant winter um, and could hold people essentially enslaved. Right. So it was this oppressive colonial force that had taken over Narnia. And I forget sort of what the background was, but it was like uh, there was this greater legal thing that had been agreed upon. And so what Aslan did was essentially settle the score, not by like shredding up the contract and saying like your contract isn't isn't good and we're not going to listen to it. But by actually saying like whatever this thing is, it's legitimate and I'm going to pay uh, you know, f- fulfill the contractual agreement of one side of the party uh-huh. um, for everybody else. And then it's playing off the idea that the witch it's herself is the one who is bringing about what she thinks will sort of solidify her power and her reign, but is actually the thing that, that undoes it. Uh, she doesn't realize she's essentially fulfilling the the contract against herself. So I think Lewis was playing with a lot of different themes that you pick up in different parts of scripture. Um, even Jeremy sent an article from the Gospel Coalition sort of uh, for us to, to pick on, where it's basically uh, sort of classic Gospel Coalition, like C.S. Lewis is great and all, but beware, you know, he's not penal substitutionary atonement-y enough. Uh, and he was like, you know, he's a big heretic because he talked about universal atonement. Um, so, but I, like you could pick on C.S. Lewis in other ways uh, if if what you're trying to do is like make the Chronicles of Narnia fit some sort of like Nicene Creed test, (laughs) right? Rather than just appreciating sort of metaphor and imagery and all that. So one thing we'll look at uh, is that actually, if you remember the scene, Aslan gets tied up, tied to the the stone altar. Right. And uh, I've mentioned this before, but I think one of the key passages in the New Testament to understanding all of this framework of what Jesus was doing. The binding the strong man? Yeah. So I actually think one of the primary metaphors we're supposed to see is that somehow what Jesus did would have been tying up the white witch, uh, not tying up Jesus, um, but the but is the imagery of sort of the white witch is this imprisoner, this sort of like a oppressing hmm. uh, devil figure that's in power. And, and is holding everybody as, as captives or slaves or prisoners. Uh, we'll get into some of those uh, words in a second. Uh, but the, the binding of the strongman idea, if you remember, was basically Jesus saying, uh, and I'll just read it, How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. So we'll see is this isn't like a, I know this kind of sounds sometimes like a one-off line. It's actually underlying a whole bunch of uh, passages of the New Testament. But what we'll get into is like, okay, so the question that Jeremy is posing and that so many people have asked is like, you know, is ransom theory a thing? And we'll we'll answer pretty quickly. Yes, it is. If it is, then like who was a ransom paid to, right? So you'll have some people answer, okay, I see language of ransom in the New Testament, uh, but 
God clearly didn't pay the devil anything. Like, we don't want to believe that. We don't want to say that God actually, like, paid a price to Satan. So we'll interpret ransom as more sort of like a, a general idea for, like, Jesus paid a high price. Like, it was costly what Jesus did. But there wasn't, like, an actual exchange of goods happening. Um, I think Jeremy is right to say that Calvinism is essentially setting up a framework in which Jesus is paying off God. Like that is essentially what it is. It's a ransom from God to God uh, to to pay for the penalty in, in people's place. But there's been this age-old question of like, <laughs> if there's a ransom, who is it paid to? And what exactly was it? What does it all mean? And I think right alongside that question is the question of like, who did Jesus tie up and how? Like, how did that actually happen? Who... Who did Jesus rescue while the while this strong man was tied up in the corner of the house, right? Like, what is what is all happening here, and how does that relate to death, resurrection, blood, all the stuff we've been talking about? So, Nate, bef- like, as we jump in, let me just say, like, are you, do you feel like I'm like, okay, Jesus paid a ransom. Like, what pops in your head? Do you have, like, a cohesive idea of what that would mean or what, that entailed or is that still just is it this totally strange fuzzy thing and i guess secondarily we've had this long series of conversations that are talking about chemistry and these chemical changes that need to happen do you see any natural connection between those ideas well what i was gonna say is like it feels they feel counter to each other a bit um like the whole going down the ransom theory path feels like it's like, oh, a whole nother way to think about this versus the way we have been thinking about it, which is this kind of chemical thing that needed to happen. So unless you're going to say that the chemical thing that needed to happen was a ransom, then it, it really feels like two different, pretty different paths. How is it not two different paths, Tim? Yeah, let's let's explore that. But maybe just the the you know big picture answer is I think one of the ways to answer that question is that a chemical or set of chemical events needed to be accomplished in order to set people free. And so you have the liberation theme and you have a chemical change theme that we've called cleansing or sanctification. And I think what we'll try to do is see how actually in order for people to be liberated, according to to at least various authors, they needed to experience those chemical changes in order to attain freedom. And this will connect to the whole cosmic war and all that. Hmm. Uh, And I think in the author's minds, when they're playing with these different ideas, you know, part of why atonement conversations are so difficult is the data is just so complex, right? (laughs) Like there's so many metaphors, so many ideas going on, just say in the epistles of the new Testament. Um, there's just so many data points, but I think part of what's happening is in, in the author's minds, these ideas are all playing into one another. They are interconnected. So that uh, metaphor we've used, I think is from Scott McKnight of atonement theories or atonement um, metaphors as like golf clubs in a, in a golf bag. Uh, I hate that one. Yeah. I hate that metaphor. Well, that also... It feels so loosey-goosey. It feels so like... Because I, part of the reason I hate it is because people that hold a penal substitutionary atonement have explained it like that. Like it's, well, it's not the only thing I believe. It's just one of the, you know, 
it's one of the tools in the in the toolbox or something um and i guess if maybe it maybe the analogy works if you can just say okay we'll take that take that golf club out <laughs> of the bag <laughs> and then i'm fine with having all the other golf clubs but i don't know the way my brain works is like i want to know what is the what's the answer what's the real thing that it was um and maybe i'm just maybe that's not the right way to think about this yeah i mean i think it's a natural <clears throat> it's a natural reaction i think it's probably good for us that the bible doesn't have just like one answer on on the topic but i think I think it's a helpful metaphor in some ways. It breaks down in others, and one of them is I, th- I think it is a metaphor that uh, that helps lead you to the sense that these are competing views, right? Like you're either using a five iron or a three iron. Mm. I th- and I don't, you know, I don't need to come up with like the metaphor to win the metaphor race, but maybe something in the term, something along the lines of a puzzle or like a something where the the pieces are interconnected. So it's not, uh, you know, pick the the three iron or pick the five iron. It's like <laughs> atonement, making things holy, is is connected with making people free, which is connected from liberating them from death, which is what eternal life means. It's all these different pieces, different ways of uh, of looking at it. So maybe the diamond uh, metaphor, which is uh, an age old one, where it's one thing. But depending on which angle you're looking at it from, you see a different a different glimmer or a different uh, shine or something. That might be a, a maybe a better metaphor. Mm. So, okay, let's jump into some of the intricate data points. So first, the re- the reason ransom theory hasn't gone away, despite uh, many people wanting it to go away, is you just simply have texts like Mark ten forty five. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Or 1 Timothy 2, 6. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. Uh, we'll, we'll get into this a little bit later. We're going to talk about ransom theory as it connects to atonement will solidify the importance of a universal view of atonement. So just take a little mental note here. That Jesus is presented by Paul as a ransom or as someone who gave himself as a ransom for all humanity, all human beings. We still have lots of homework to do on the book of Hebrews because essentially the entire book of Hebrews is dealing with all of the kinds of things we've been talking about, holiness, blood, priests, tabernacle, all of that. But here's just a clip from chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. Since the children have flesh and blood, he, referring to Jesus, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. We've talked about that one before. It's a really interesting line. It's essentially talking about liberation from death, but also liberation from the fear of death, which is an interesting <laughs> interesting way of phrasing what it is humanity uh, is enslaved to. Uh, but then that passage goes on and it talks about this is, a, this is seen in line with Jesus making atonement for the sins of the people or, or atoning. Uh, for the sins of humanity. Uh, so so these ideas, even just in a, this passage in Hebrews, are lumped together. Sin, 
liberation from death. This isn't taking our punishment so that we don't have to be killed, even though that might be the way we want to synthesize these ideas. But the idea of, of forgiveness is intimately connected with the idea of liberation, which is connected with this idea of escaping death. Uh, and then, okay, so... So you got so you got ransom. We still haven't answered the question at all. If like, <laughs> how did it work? What exactly does it mean? Uh, but then there's a whole other uh, collection of texts that are playing with a with an a related uh, but even more specific uh, metaphoric picture, which is that of the the liberation of war captives, of people who uh, were taken in a war as as war bounty prisoners and then held captive by the the colonizing foreign nation is this going back to like the early episodes we did with the divine beings and stuff like that yes it's it's all it's all i mean so think about it if that's the background which is part of what i was trying to make the case for last year that there's this whole background of information where there are other gods that god has delegated to lead the other nations of the world who have sort of taken more power than they were supposed to have. And if it was two years ago, <laughs> it was, yeah. So you said last year, it was two years. Oh yeah. Ago. It's 2020. Okay. That's right. Okay. Two years ago. So yeah, if you have this whole framework, you got God delegated the world to, to be ruled by other divine beings. And those divine beings have misruled the world. And God is trying to both reunite with humanity and then help humanity get its rulership back if that's the framework you're working with, then obviously that's going to underscore everything else, right? You're not going to talk about <laughs> Jesus as a manifestation of God without thinking about those things all all at the same time. So it's it's all there. Um, but th- so can you think of uh, and even like picture? So picture that. So now we're okay. We've got the strong man idea. We have the idea that Jesus gave himself as a ransom to free people from maybe a couple different things. Uh, then you have uh, a couple texts I'll read on captives, but even just think of that idea of <laughs> of their captives who have been taken by foreign powers. Um, can you at all sort of like piece together how you might articulate one way of making sense of that stuff? Hey, Brian, do you know anyone that was once a teenage fundamentalist? Oh, Troy, you know that I was because you and I have a podcast called I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. I did know that. But you know what I find myself asking these days? No, I don't, but I think you're going to tell me. What about all those things that church gave us definite answers for? What are we supposed to think about all those things now? Well, funnily enough, that's what we're doing for season five of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Ooh, Brian, I sense the Lord at work here. He works in mysterious ways. And we are going to unpack these things. We're going to find out what we do think about them now. So tune in to Season 5 of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, the official podcast for the Azusa Street Revival. (laughs) Um, I'm not quite sure that's true, but it is available wherever you get your podcasts. That's not starting to get at, like, the Israelites being in captivity, is it? The multiple times they've been in captivity? In, like, real political captivity, you mean? Yeah. I think it's, again, all of these writers are are <laughs> Jewish and familiar with the Hebrew history, with the Jewish history and the Hebrew Bible. 
none of them are going to be writing anything without having all of that in their minds. Right. Right. Whether that's the main thing they're talking about here is questionable, but it, it's absolutely certain that one of the things Messiah was supposed to do, one of the things that all Israel was waiting, all the various groups that considered themselves Israel, what they were waiting for God to do was to to redeem them from exile, which essentially is a say of, a way of saying redeem them from captivity. Right. So to be to be brought out from under the oppression of the Roman Empire to become their own nation again. That is what they're waiting for. So Paul and Peter and the others who are going around, you know, saying that the time of God, the day of the Lord has has come, they're certainly not going to say that uh, that something less than that happened, right? right? They they may at times be saying that happened differently than we thought or it happened in this more spiritual way or whatever, but they're not going to say that like, hey, that didn't actually matter. It's okay that we're all still enslaved and suffering and all that sort of thing. So that's definitely part of it. But you're saying looping it back to like some of this like chemical chemistry stuff we've been talking about. Do I see any kind of connection there? Mm -hmm. I guess there's a sense that humans at the time were captive to this structure of having to do these certain things in order to be close to God. Is that captivity though, really? Yeah. I mean, I think there, Paul, uh, at, at one time uses the same slavery captivity language to talk about being freed from the law, but that is not, that is essentially a, a subsidiary effect of what Jesus accomplished. That is not the main thing, right? The, Jews didn't need to be liberated from being Jews or being uh, Jews with Torah. That's certainly not what Jesus came to do. So, okay, so let's, let's just explore a little. So you got a few verses uh, that I think are really interesting. Some of them you'll probably remember, Nate. Uh, Colossians 2.15. Uh, I remember this early on before I had any idea what this meant, and I still don't even know that, that I know what it means. Um, this verse was just fascinating to me, and it made me realize that there was much more going on that I understood. And it's it's the line, and having disarmed the powers and authority referring to Jesus, made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Right. So that seems very in keeping with the divine beings, the divine realm. Yeah, but then he there's that trampled them. public spectacle part, right? That's sort of like, okay, triumph, you know, okay, there's some sort of victory. But then there's this this idea that's a pretty like, a pretty niche idea of, Essentially, I think most interpreters uh, think this is referring to a, a military triumphal procession when the king and the army comes back from war and they're leading a, a parade of the, the captives they have taken and the, the pillage, the booty that they have pillaged, uh, the plunder, I mean. Uh, they're coming back in this sort of like victorious parade and the slaves would have been uh, humiliated and, and taunted and tortured and whatever as they're being led back in. So the picture here is that is that Jesus actually somehow went out into battle and then is like leading these like powers and authorities <laughs> as slaves back into town. Like that's a weird that's a weird picture, right? Yeah. And not 
I don't like it. <laughs> yeah, totally. You know, like it just it makes my stomach upset, especially when you start talking about, you know, what what the nations would have done, or even the Israelites probably would have done, as far as the parading the the captives back in and the the shame and torture that goes along with that. You know, to use that picture in any way associated with the Jesus story just feels feels wrong. It feels off. I want to explain that away. Yeah. So, well, we won't explain it away, but look at two other passages where it's it's playing with the same imagery, the same war imagery, return from war uh, thing, but using it in a totally different way. Second uh, Corinthians 2.14, but thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in, tri- in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. <laughs> okay, so what just happened? What happened with the metaphor? We are now, it's now, instead of we, Jesus going out, taking the foreign powers as, as Jesus' slaves to bring them back, the idea is Jesus has gone out to the foreign enemies which have enslaved the people, the, the we that Paul is referring to. They have been taken captive already from a past war. And Jesus has gone out and rescued them, right? Which perfectly fits with the tie up a bind man and and lead out those who have been kidnapped, essentially. Um, And so Paul here is saying, that's what we are. We are essentially a, a train of freed captives in the triumphal procession that's coming back. So it's the idea that, okay, so you go out to war, army goes out to war, if you lose, you never see them again. If they win, they come back and they bring the the freed slaves, kidnapped people, prisoners from from the last wars. They bring them back home and then they bring the other enemy uh, s- slaves with them. So now if you combine these two, uh, it's the same imagery, but but the we, the, the Jesus people, are... Uh, have been liberated from under those powers and then the powers themselves have somehow been been imprisoned or taken captive uh, by Jesus on their own. And similar to this second one is Ephesians 4, 8 through 10. Uh, Here it gets even more explicit because what Paul does is he quotes Psalm 68. It says, this is why it says, and then here's the quote, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. And the quote, what does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions he who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe so here is really interesting psalm 68 which which paul quotes here is essentially a long psalm that's playing with the same metaphor in which god goes out to the nations that have taken israelite slaves as war captives and brings them back in and, and interestingly, this is one of the areas where Paul just gets pretty creative with <laughs> the scripture, is the idea is the king comes back with, with rescued slaves and plunder called gifts, essentially belongings, gold and animals and weapons and all that. So what Paul does is he actually changes the verb <laughs> in the line to, instead of bringing gifts... He says, gave gifts as a way to, to now secondarily explain that the way the Spirit is working in Christians to do crazy things, perform miracles, all that, 
these spiritual gifts are essentially metaphorically taking the place of war plunder. So again, in this complicated <laughs> metaphor, Jesus has somehow brought back captives from their captivity and at the end of a kind of triumphal war, a, a war victory. Uh, and now again, gets even more specific talking about the ascending and descending is referring in this uh, metaphoric picture, referring to Jesus coming to earth and then ascending to the heavens, like we talked about, uh, and the importance of sort of the resurrection being where Jesus takes all of humanity with him to glory. Okay, hold on a second. How is how is uh, releasing captives, how is that connected to paying a ransom, though? Do you, like, pay the ransom and so then you get the captives? I think, so I think that's part of the, the question, right? But, but so we see, like, the idea of a ransom or... Uh, Lutron, which is the Greek, another way to um, to translate it is redemption or redemption price. The idea is it's a it's a price that is paid. It's the reason why we use the English word ransom. A price that is paid to buy to purchase the release of a slave or a anything. <laughs> okay, so it's the language of you're purchasing somebody's freedom, and you're paying a price to to do it. So. Th- we can see how that is obviously connected to the idea of of liberating captives, right? So these lines here in Colossians, 2 Corinthians, Ephesians, they're not talking about a price being paid. It's more like that binding the strongman metaphor where it's not paying off the strongman, it's like beating the strongman up, right? It's it's physical violence metaphor, right? So you beat the strongman up, you tie the strongman up, you take all the captives and you get the heck out of there exactly yeah so it's more like that scene in disney's robin hood where they the sleeping guard they distract the sleeping guard and and get the key and open up the jail cell and everyone runs out together yeah and so uh, we've touched on this but i think you simply cannot read these texts and make any sense of them if you don't understand or uh, with many people refuse to to consider the the basic concept here is that God is not in control of the world. That that what's supposed to have been happening is not what is the current state of things. So the reason why you have this ruler of the air and this the, the Lord of this world, right, language, the whole idea of the binding the strong man is, one, Jesus isn't in power. God is not in control. Somebody else is... Uh, is in control, and that's a bad somebody else. Okay, that's basic, <laughs> basic assumption number one, and number two is the one that's a little more complicated, which I said is the whole reason for saying bind the strong man instead of just kill the strong man. I don't think right here it's nonviolence or a commitment to nonviolence. It's the belief that these beings are immortal and cannot die. So what we're talking about may or may not include Rome and the political powers. I think it. It's always alluding to that. But there is this belief, according to these authors, of these divine powers that are sort of behind Rome or or actually like ruling Rome and Rome's army when when Rome comes to town kind of thing. Uh, so so that's why the the language is of of like you say, distraction or tying up and then getting the heck out of there. It is not the language of just, oh, and we destroyed everybody and now we're free. 
right? We didn't, it's not the, the metaphor of we killed all the bad guys. The reason, part of the reason it's more complicated, it's there are several reasons, but one of the reasons is this belief that the bad guys can't die. And so something more complex has to happen. This sounds like when there's a perfect setup for a sequel, right? So yeah, they escaped from jail. <laughs> they tied them up and they got away and you're like, yay, all right. And then the season ends or whatever. And you're like, okay. Or the movie ends. You're like, okay, there's going to be another one. I know there's going to be another one. Cause what about, they're coming back, you know, or even at the end of the movie, right? They show like after the credits roll, the guy's like, krish, krish, like starting to get out of the chains. And you're like, okay, I'm ready. Where's the sequel? Totally. It's definitely, if you were to make up a story in which you, you wanted an excuse to keep the thing going for like 18, you know, like land before time, like 12 or something, <laughs> uh, this would be, you know, creating villains that can never be disposed of uh, is a, it would be a pretty effective way to do it. Uh, let me read one last passage that'll tie these together and then we'll see if we can slowly start to make sense of it. First Peter 1, 18 through 21. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. So there, just think about, uh, it's easy to, to skip over this. Uh, re remember, you asked the question, why did Jesus have to die? Or why did blood have to be shed? And what did I, <laughs> what did I say? I mean, he didn't have to if we didn't want to fix the whole not being able to be close to God problem. Yeah, and, and that I think the, the better way and the way that's closer to what the authors were, were thinking is not that any blood ever had to be shed, but that blood was especially valuable and therefore it was worth killing animals for and Jesus believed it was worth dying for. So, so notice that the basic thing Peter is saying right here the, the most basic thing is that Jesus's blood was a, an, a substance, a resource more valuable than silver or gold. That, that is what he's saying. He's comparing, why do you, what, like, what do silver and gold represent, right? They represent the most valuable physical <laughs> substances that we know. And what Peter's doing is saying, Jesus's blood was a substance even more valuable than that. In other words, Peter's thinking in the same terms that I was trying to sort of push us towards, which is not blood is the thing that has to happen. Jesus's blood is especially valuable. And that's a very, you know, even though it sounds the same, what we've tried to point out is it's a very different uh, framing uh, of things. And so the, the case is being made that essentially a something some sort of price was paid. This again, using the language of redemption. So we were redeemed, but we were redeemed with a, a substance even more valuable than the normal payoff price, the normal uh, monetary good of silver or gold, right? That people would use for, for exchanging assets or, you know, paying people. Uh, we were bought with Jesus's blood. So, so clearly, here, here we see again the ideas of purchasing or ransoming, re redeeming, 
with with something of value and the idea of freeing and liberating people and that Jesus somehow did those things. We can see all that, right? Yeah. So then it just, I mean, it really just raised the same question of like, okay, well, who is the blood paid to? If we're going to think of blood as, uh, amongst other things, as a valuable resource that it, it cost blood in order to free people, like where did the blood go? <laughs> Who accepted that price, right? Like did, did it, was this an actual interpersonal Jesus to somebody uh, payment? Or is this just completely metaphorical of, of Jesus did the things that we talked about last time, bore sin in his body in order to dispose of it through death, and then bore humanity in his body in order to, to bring humanity to God and then cleansed the whole world and made the world holy with his blood being shed on the ground. Jesus did all of those things. And one way that we can explain what that was, was Jesus paying a high price or Jesus paying the price of even his blood. It just seems like there would have been an easier way to say that if that's exactly what had happened, you know, my mind wants it all just kind of laid out like, hey, and maybe they feel like they were doing that with the strongman passage or whatever. But like to only mention that like one or two times feels like, well, maybe that's not what was going on there. You know, I don't know. Yeah, I I think I get the feeling. And there is lots being lost in translation. There is even more, I would guess, being lost just in the cultural gap. Right. And how many uh, presuppositions and beliefs about the world are different from from us to them. True, right. Uh, and there's the fact that they weren't trying to write simple <laughs> texts. You know, right. even Peter, who we just read, and we're having a hard time understanding what it means, wrote about Paul that we know, I know you can't really understand much of what he writes to you, but you should listen to him anyway, right? So, and then we all know, we've, we've looked at just the, the amazing complexity of the Hebrew Bible, right? No one was trying to be simple. Uh, this was trying to be a rich, complex literature playing with these sets of ideas. So part of it, what we read in the New Testament, is whether it's a direct quote or just a simple allusion. For instance, when Peter says just the words, with the blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, okay, instead of taking one line to explain exactly what he thinks the significance of Jesus dying is, he essentially just told us to upload all of Leviticus and, th and figure it out for ourselves. By connecting the blood of Jesus to the unblemished lamb, or one of the unblemished lambs that was used in, in the Levitical system, what he's doing is intentionally complicating it in a way that now can, can load in all of this meaning from the Levitical system onto what Jesus is doing. So that's the opposite of what you're asking for, yeah. right? It is, it is intentionally uh, sending us down a hundred rabbit holes at once, uh, which I do think should change our expectations of, of what we get from these texts, right? Uh, in terms of maybe, maybe the journey down the rabbit holes is, is more the point than being able to synthesize it all simply uh, at the end of it. I think what's tough is when someone who's wanting to debate us on this or disagreeing with us and trying to pull us back into the fold, into the circle of kind of a traditional 
um, and by, when I say traditional, I mean the last couple hundred years, reading of Scripture, Reformed reading of Scripture, they have, they have like the simple, easy verses on their side. You know, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's like, I know, but, and I'm trying to tell them, like, I know, but there's something more going on here. You're, you're, you know, you're not seeing the whole picture. And they're like, yeah, but the wages of sin is death and the gift of God is eternal life, you know, Christ Jesus, our Lord. So, you know, maybe you are missing the point that they say to me, you know what I'm saying? Because why can't you just read these verses plain and simple and get to the heart of the matter? Um, I, I'm being facetious here, but like, do you see what I'm saying? Like yeah. they have those on their side and, and we have this really complex thing that I could never repeat back to you. Um, <laughs> and probably most of our listeners couldn't really repeat They'd be like, hey, go check out this podcast. Yeah, but that's, again, like you just said, the wages of sin is death is part of the easy verses that seem to fit, you know, a certain viewpoint. But for one, the only reason that seems easy to understand is because it's been presented consistently in a similar way over and over and over and over and over again. The reality is the verse you just pointed out nine times out of 10 people I've experienced interpret it to mean something entirely different than what it says. What everybody, especially Calvinists, interpret that verse to mean is the the punishment that God doles out for sin is death. But that isn't what it says. It says the, the wage of sin is death. It has nothing to do with punishment. It has nothing to do with price. But the word wage seems like it's saying what you earned for what you did. Or it could just be consequence. Hmm. That is the thing that you go to work and you get something at the end of it, right? That is the the fruit that you, that uh, it is born from uh, from an action, right? So the thing it's it's kind of like you know if if you want to read it a certain way, then of course it's easy and simple, right? Uh, and so so trying to to complicate that, you know, if if people aren't open to seeing it differently. Uh, is going to be a, you know, sort of futile, tough project. But the point is like, I would contest, we're not even sure. Most people aren't even sure what that means. (laughs) And usually if you think it's a simple solution or a simple reading, you're missing a lot of it and potentially even misreading uh, much of it. As I actually think the, the verse you just quoted is often done. Uh, Okay. Let's get back to ransom and try to see if we can make any sense of this. So, okay. Blood price being paid, all that. Um, I, th- I think there are multiple, been multiple approaches to trying to figure out sort of the answer to this question. One, you and I haven't talked about this uh, in a long time, Nate, and really haven't spent much time on the podcast, but Rene Girard, uh, w- who most of you, many of you have probably heard of or read or at least tried to understand some of uh, his ideas. Uh, but Rene Girard's work, I think, is one, has been one really interesting and fruitful way of trying to sort of answer the question of like how did Jesus's death and actions and and all of that essentially liberate people from a from a foreign power and one of the things that René Girard essentially uh, argued was that what Jesus did was revealed evil for evil and revealed the scapegoat mechanism uh, as unjust and evil, and also revealed it as the thing that humanity is always doing, uh, which 
for a while, Nate, you were, I remember you and I were talking about Rene Girard a few years ago and it was like light bulbs were going off all over the place. Yeah. And again, like I kind of had settled on that of like, okay. And I mentioned this a couple episodes ago, that was sort of how I've been viewing this. It's like, look what the systems of the world, look what we can put together, look what we can create and look what it can do. Look what these uh, systems of violence, retribution, um, scapegoating, to, to use Rene Girard's word, look what the, look what this is capable of doing. And so I, I looked at the story of Jesus um, through reading Rene Girard. It's like, okay, that's what we're supposed to see here is like, don't set up systems of the world like this. And so in my mind, it's like, okay, that's the way. That's, that's what we need to, <laughs> that's how we need to view this. Um, and now there's this chemical thing I got to fit in there as well. And there's maybe a handful of other golf clubs, but yeah, Rene Girard, super, uh, helpful way of viewing this, I think. But now I'm realizing not the only way. And just, again, another, another golf club in the golf bag. Yep. Or, or some other metaphor. Right. Yeah, sure. <laughs> yep. Yes. Yeah, so you have other, in John, I'll, I'll sort of fast forward through here in the gospel of John, there's a lot of attention given to, uh, Jesus revealing truth about God to the world. So there's sort of like, I have revealed you to the world. I have glorified you, that sort of thing. Uh, so there may be some of that happening, that essentially liberation is a kind of light bulb going off. Um, there's a lot of attention in John to the metaphor of light and Jesus being light that sort of illuminates things. Um, so that sort of could be part of it, right? Uh, I won't read it. Hebrews, the rest of Hebrews 2 uh, Hebrews 2 is just fascinating. Um, but essentially, um, Hebrews 2, 5 through 13, which is all the stuff before what we just read, is essentially this fascinating bit comparing Jesus to angels, quoting Psalm 8. Essentially, to summarize, part of what the author is saying is that Jesus, that the problem is that, remember, this... Uh, the, Part of what the author is doing is actually a meditation on the first few chapters of Genesis. And what he's saying is the problem is humanity was supposed to be ruling, but isn't ruling, hasn't been ruling, right? We said, we've talked about how that is much of what's happening in the serpent in the garden story, is it's this revolution where these other beings seize power from humans and and then what the author of Hebrews is doing is essentially saying Jesus has started a counter-revolution, where what Jesus did is by uh, subjecting himself under the angels for a little while, that's the line in verse 9, but oh, yeah. we see Jesus who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. We'll talk about death here in a minute and the importance of that. But basically, it's this idea that Jesus made himself lower than he ought to be because that's where humanity is, and then started a revolution in which humanity is going to be brought up, ascend to its rightful place, not just like with God in heaven, but its rightful place as ruling over the angels. And of course, don't forget the line I love to bring up of Paul saying, don't you remember you're going to rule over angels? Right. <laughs> so, so that's part of the idea. And then what the author of Hebrews is doing is saying, we're, we're not seeing that happening yet. That part is this work in process. And I think the idea is with the spirit, 
the revolution that Jesus started is going to be taking place. So it's kind of this war metaphor again, but it's actually this idea of like those that the the captives that were taken out of imprisonment, they weren't just supposed to be freed and liberated. They were actually supposed to be then put in power over their oppressors. It is essentially like overthrow Rome, get free from Rome, and then you are the world empire. It is that sort of uh, idea. Um, so there's some of that going on, but Okay, let's end this with sort of talking about the death piece. Okay, so I talked about the idea that that Jesus died in in large part in order to dispose of stuff, <laughs> dispose of sin, right? Right. Uh, we actually didn't get into some of the details we could have to illuminate this, but Leviticus and the Levitical system spent a lot of time talking about proper disposal protocols. Uh, this was a theme in Leviticus of how to dispose of things. And so when the New Testament authors look at Jesus dying and and say that, look, Jesus brought things with him through the ultimate disposal process, there's large precedent. There's <laughs> scriptural precedent for that. Is this where things get to like, did Jesus go to hell or not? Because I remember that when I was in the Reformed world, that was like a big no, no. It's like, no, Jesus didn't go to hell. We can't say that. Yeah. Well, and it starts a fight because then it's like creed versus Bible and whether we're going to be like creedal Christians and like, then do we have to be Catholic? But no, we're Protestants. So it's sola scriptura. <laughs> and I don't think anybody actually cared about the theological significance. It was more like we had to decide what side of the, the field we were on. Oh, okay. Um, so I, I passed the buck on that one last time, but okay. We'll just touch on a piece of this. Remember, one of the strangest texts in the entire New Testament <laughs> is in one of the resurrection stories. Oh, yeah. Where it's not just Jesus as a floaty version comes back, but... All the dead people. The whole army. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Has just, risen from And it's from just like a grave. line, and it's just like passed totally. over. Totally. It's like, okay, uh, can we talk about that? <laughs> <laughs> yes. That is the moment you're supposed to remember that you are reading some extraordinary literature. Uh so, okay, wh why is that there? Well, the idea is that Jesus is the, what? <laughs> the liberator who's, who's redeeming captives, right? Well, mm. the, just as death is the ultimate form of disposal, death is the ultimate form of captivity. So remember we just said Hebrews was talking about what we needed to be liberated from was death and the fear of death. I don't know. If a bunch of dead people are running around the town, I, I'm still afraid of death. I'll put it that way. <laughs> right. Paul, I think late Paul, and this is a longer conversation of Paul, how he changed over the course of his life, came to see that there was still something we weren't liberated from because all of his friends kept dying and he almost died multiple times. And so what he actually came to believe, uh, which I think largely has been missed in Christian cultures because it sounds sort of dualistic or entirely dualistic, is that as long as we are stuck in our perishable decaying bodies, this is the whole argument of 1 Corinthians 15, then we have not truly been liberated from death because these bodies die. That is the language of perishable. If you want to do a fun little study on this topic, just go to any... Bible software or program and just type in perish or perishable and see all the different things that come up. There's constant attention to the kinds of materials that perish and die and those that do not. Yeah. And that's what people always push back on, like with Jesus, quote unquote, healing all these people. 
you know, sometimes people outside the Christian world will say, well, yeah, but they still died. And even I've heard Christians say that. It's like, but they still died, right? Yeah. And that's part of, okay, so so that is part of the underlying idea here. I think at some point, some of the authors and some of the early Christians seem to have believed that Jesus was going to come back so soon that most people wouldn't die. As time went on, clearly everybody, if if they held that view, would have had to adapt and and deal with and create a theology that was incorporating the fact that most of the people believing this thing were going to die first. But, but Paul makes a case that human bodies aren't compatible. Again, this is a compatibility thing, just like we talked about with blood being the compatible solution and Jesus being a compatible being. Human bodies, because they decay and are related to death, are not compatible with the heavenly things, according to Paul's thinking. And so when is it, this is, the line is quoted all the time. I remember this was part of our Easter program of death, where now is your sting, yeah. right? Where is the, the sting? <laughs> death, where, where uh, what was the King James? Where art thou sting or something like that. But what Paul is saying is that that's not, hap- that's not real yet. When that liberation will happen, the final true liberation from death is when we actually die and get new bodies. Um, So in Paul's mind, at least part of Paul's thinking, the thing that Jesus is liberating us from is death, is the ultimate thing, the last enemy, right? Um, But also even just our bodies, uh, because our bodies are subject to death. They are slaves to death. Our Our bodies have to die. And so... We're being liberated from our bodies. Okay, so sum all this up. Uh, the last piece, what's one of the things that more Christians talk about? You just actually mentioned it in quoting Paul and essentially quoting Calvinists. One of the ideas that we talk about more than anything in Christianity is eternal life. Yep. I just read a church's uh, statement of belief last night that's like a mile away from our house, and they waxed eloquently about the eternal resting place of Many, many people. Uh, I mean, they had paragraphs on what heaven and hell, specifically hell, were going to be like and uh, the lake of fire, which is, they, they didn't just say everyone who was damned to hell was going to go to hell. They said they were going to live in the lake of fire, like in the lake of fire. That's, <laughs> that's a very important thing to a lot of Christians is knowing exactly who is going, how you're going, where you're going. So yeah, I agree. One of the things that we have, have done ourselves and others a disservice in is back to the question of what do we take literal, what do we take as figural? We have spiritualized this phrase of eternal life or life to the ages. We have made it be not simply about avoiding death, but that is what the idea means. That is the absolute essence of it. We've made it to be like avoiding punishment, right? Avoiding wrath avoiding the lake of fire, hell, whatever, the, the most common uh, contrast to being saved in the New Testament is perishing. It's not punishment, it's perishing, it's dying. The, the emphasis on eternal life, this is all just going back to reflections on Genesis, is the idea is God doesn't want people to die. Right. It's John 3.16. God doesn't want people to perish Not God doesn't want to kill everybody or God doesn't want to punish everybody or God doesn't want to send everybody to hell. Death is a tragedy and it is an enslaving force that God wants to liberate people from. And God, 
in Jesus was willing to experience death so that other people wouldn't have to. So then the belief of Christianity is based on the idea that if you die, originally it's possible people thought they wouldn't die. Now, for most of Christian history, it has been that if you die, it won't genuinely be death because in some sense you are in the process of being liberated from death. And that is what it means to, to be saved. Not because God killed you, but because death happens to, to all of right. us. So liberation from death, if you're going to pick one thing that's probably the most emphasized, I would say it's that. Okay, so let me take one stab at making one effort to synthesize this with all the Levitical atonement stuff we've been talking about. So if you recall, an important question that I've tried to bring up multiple times is, is why is it God couldn't simply reconcile with the world? Why couldn't God just go be with the world again? Why did Adam and Eve have to leave the garden? Why couldn't God go follow him out there? Why did God have to limit God's presence to just being in the tabernacle and just being with Israel? All of those things are, are the logical uh, underpinning to, for instance, why God would delegate other nations to be ruled by other gods in the first place, and also why this whole system of chemical changes had to happen. Uh, but I also think it's underlying the idea of of why the chemical things Jesus did accomplished a ransom. And it was because the basic chemical belief that God in, in a defiled world with defiled beings couldn't simply reunite. It wasn't that simple. And so, because it wasn't that simple, God had to, according to the belief of the authors, essentially abandon over this is the Deuteronomy 32 and the whole table of nations thing. Abandon over most of humanity to be ruled by other gods while God created a way to make the world holy again. Clean and then holy. And in the process, the underlying beliefs that you see in some of the Psalms is that that delegation project went really bad, way worse than planned. And those Delegated rulers, the essentially they were supposed to be babysitters, became oppressive enslavers. And so what was supposed to be this temporary, not the best, but it would work for a little while, turned into this tragic situation in which God now had to rescue humanity from the very beings that God had put humanity under. Not This isn't Calvinism of like God had wanted bad things to happen to them in the first place. It's not the idea. It's the idea that the plan went awry and God then had to adjust, respond, and get creative to, to fix it. And so when you compile those two ideas and Jesus, and, and I think we need to get into the details of this more, but again, this is the, the whole point of the book of Acts is Peter and Paul learning, coming to see that everything that was once defiled is not defiled anymore and the world has been made clean and holy is what that means is now all of those people who have been enslaved to these powers, these divine beings in these other nations, who couldn't access God before because of defilement and the, the Alka-Seltzer in the soda bottle problem, and that's why they were enslaved in those nations in the first place, that now, through Jesus, they could waltz right into the throne room of God that chemical change had happened so sufficiently that essentially, it, metaphorically, what it was was the prison doors had just been swung open 
And there was now no reason why any person in the whole world, and indeed the entire world, every person, there was no reason why they couldn't just walk up to God again, metaphorically speaking. And so what the gospel was, again, this is a way of saying that holiness was the gospel. What Paul and the apostles went out and did was essentially said, hey, everybody, there's an open invitation. Come on back. <laughs> there's no, there's now no obstacle. The obstacles have been removed. And in essence, the, the liberation, the, the, the liberating action of Jesus's death and then resurrection was to open those doors and eliminate any separating barriers. And that is the driving force that then, you know, leads people to go out and say, okay, walk through the door, like come into being back in a relationship to be reconciled with God. That's why Paul uses the language of we are uh, ministers of reconciliation. All we're doing is inviting them to come back. So essentially it's Jesus's life that he, that Jesus paid as an, as a valuable cost to accomplish this chemical process that then allows people to participate in their own liberation, that open the gates and they just have to walk on through. I think that's at least one way of making sense of a lot of these data points, even if it's not the only one. All right, that's uh, that's a lot. <laughs> I still feel like we're pushing out this conversation that we need to have some time of how, how are we who maybe aren't as gifted in thinking about all this stuff and communicating all this stuff, how are we supposed to like actually use this new information in relationships, in conversations, like how do we access this? And are there ways to simplify this down and say this in, you know, easier to communicate to people that maybe aren't in this world and aren't thinking this way, um, communicate to them. So we'll do that. We'll keep talking about this. We'll keep processing through it. Thank you so much for spending time with us today. And we always love to hear from you. So if you want to tell your story or have any questions, um, want your question to be on an episode of Almost Heretical, you can do that all at almostheretical.com. We'll see you next time. Peace, y'all.